Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. This is Pat Solver with the Dr. Ways In on radio, and we're going to have fun today because we're going to talk about the Accountable Affordable Care Act, I almost said the Accountable Care Act, and health reform, and we have with us an expert in the topic, Paul Keckley. And uh, Paul is an Oxford-trained health economist and a health policy expert who's um, now the managing director of Navigant. And he is a speaker, a writer. He has a weekly health reform newsletter. Um, he knows what he's talking about when he talks about the ACA. So, Paul, welcome. Thank you, Pat. Good to talk. Yeah, good. So I thought we'd uh, just start out by um, having you tell us, because there's been so much obfuscation that's gotten so politicized. Tell me, Paul, is the ACA doing what it's supposed to do? Well, I would say if you took the president's objectives, which were two, uh, when this was discussed first in uh, February of 2009, 13 months months before it was passed, the goals were to reduce cost and cover everyone. So um, it's too soon to know whether it's reducing cost. Um, There are folks that would claim it does, but coincidentally we had a bad economy, so some of the slowdown may be a bad economy and not the law. Um, And increasing coverage uh you have to give it credit it it has done that uh through a combination of medicaid expansion and the uh folks that have enrolled through the uh exchanges uh so i'd say uh pat we're 5 years into a 10 year rollout um and for expansion of coverage it gets a yes for reducing cost it gets a too soon to know. Okay. So let's then drill into the uh, the increased coverage because there are a lot of aspects to this. And the first one is um, tell us, uh, give us the numbers. I mean, what is the total increase in coverage when you combine both the expansion of Medicaid and the exchanges? And then break it down and tell us how much of that's due to um, the exchange you know, the uh, commercial insurance, and then how much of that we we give credit to the expansion of Medicaid? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the interesting things. Um, When the Department of Labor looks at these data, uh, they typically add the numbers of folks that are enrolling um, in these 27 expansion states for Medicaid. Remember, the Supreme Court said, 
um, states can't be coerced into expanding Medicaid. So uh, based on 27 states, uh, looks like there are about uh, 9 million more folks that have gotten uh, coverage through Medicaid. Um, the thing then you are careful about is Medicaid tends to be um, a transitional insurance program for many people. So the number at the beginning of the year is often a very different number than the end of the year because uh, there are a lot of folks that are in and out of Medicaid in less than six months. So that'll complicate the numbers. Um, the exchange enrollment, um, 11 million people have gone to the exchange, about eight plus Eight million of those went through healthcare.gov, which is uh, the federal exchange, and the ballots went through the state exchanges. Um, but then, again, like everything, enrolling through the exchange and being permanently insured are two different things, um, and that's a number that kind of floats around a little bit. And uh, so I think the, the consensus is, that somewhere between 17, 19 million people uh, as a result of the Affordable Care Act, and that's a net gain, a net reduction in the uninsured, will have insurance. And so um, the percent but, of uninsured number, has dropped to what number now? 17 to 19 million net gain in the reduction of folks who were previously not insured and who now have insurance of some kind. Right, and that's what, like having of our uninsured rate is 40%? What, oh, what? no, no. No, we, uh, we had 48 million um, uninsured when the Affordable Care Act was passed in March of 2010. And the goal was to reduce uninsured to about 25 million uh, after the law was implemented fully. And again, what's tricky about that 25 million, that includes about 11 million uh, undocumented and then a number of folks who are simply uh, not in the insurance market. So uh, good news, bad news. It cuts in half uh, the numbers of people without insurance. It does not do away with the issue of the uninsured. It just cuts it in half. So here's a different way of looking at the numbers. Um, when we started down the path of reform, 16% of the population was without insurance. Uh, now we're trickling down toward 12%, um, and you expect that number to continue to go a little lower. But um, it's a dynamic number. It's not something that in any given day is the same as it was the day before. And how would you say we, we compare now with the rest of the the developed world in terms of providing coverage for, for our people? Well, uh, what a great question, because if you looked at the 35, uh, the OECD countries, which are considered the developed systems, um, we're the only system in that group that doesn't have essentially some form of universal coverage. Uh, you'll hear the term single-payer 
the government being essentially Medicare for everybody. Uh, in some systems, the government both is the payer and then employs the docs and runs the hospital, so that varies a lot. But uh, the U.S. Uh, is by far the most fragmented and complicated and confusing system because uh, if you just want to peel the numbers back, about uh, 170 million of our population, so we've got about 315 million people, about 170 million uh, get their insurance through some private source, uh, through an employer, or they buy it on their own. Uh, we've got this 12% that have no insurance of any sort. And then the balance of that group uh, get their insurance through a government program like Medicare or Medicaid or federal employee health or other. So uh, we are not uh, a single-payer system. We do not have universal health, um, and that makes our system very unique. Yeah, unique. Yeah, that's a, that's a positive spin on it. Um, but I, I want to uh, come back and say that now that we have the 17 million people who have coverage, uh, I don't know if that necessarily translates into access to care, but do we know anything yet about whether health outcomes um, have improved, e- either by looking at you know secondary measures or primary measures? Do you, th- do you think this yeah. is making a difference? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, we know two things. We know that there was a substantial amount of pent up demand uh, for services, um, meaning that folks that um, needed some health care uh, were waiting to get covered, and then they uh, slammed the doctor's offices. We know that uh, emergency room visits increased. We know that uh, primary care was. Uh, Pretty well, the gears were stripped. Um, Are there health outcomes, meaning determinants of health status, that have substantially improved that can be quantified and related to the Affordable Care Act? Not yet. Um, Some of that is too soon to know. Uh, Some of it is um, just simply the fact that Many in the population that are newly insured, uh, we don't have a medical record. They're, they have no history. So, ah, so we don't have a baseline. We don't have baselines. So um, we know that um, a surrogate for quality in the healthcare world, in the health services research world, mm. quality is typically defined as uh, outcomes, what, what actually happens as a result of the intervention. Uh, a surrogate for that, a process measure, could be uh, access. Do people have more access to providers? And as a result of that, you expect at some point the outcome improves. Uh, yeah, there's there's evidence that the Affordable Care Act has improved access. Uh, doesn't translate quite yet to a number that says um, cancer detection rates are going down in certain populations or uh, we've begun to get our arms around obesity or things like that. So I want to shift gears here a little bit because, um, you know, I, I am a, a- 
fan of health reform and, and, and the ACA. I mean, it isn't perfect, but it's better than what we had before, which was for a lot of people, nothing. And, and yet, despite that, the people who are opposed to uh, the ACA uh, gave it many tries, as we know in Congress, um, still have one feather in their, in their quiver here, or arrow in their quiver, and that's the upcoming Supreme Court decision. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what the case is all about and then, um, and then maybe speculate on how you think it's going to come out? I know not, none of us really know, but uh, if it goes one way, it could be devastating for the ACA. If it goes another way, it'll, you know, we'll just continue along the path of, yeah. you know, that we're on now. Well, um, Pat, as you know, uh, K.V. Burwell, um, the four plaintiffs from Virginia basically are challenging that uh, the Affordable Care Act permits subsidies for buying insurance uh, only to those who enroll through a, an exchange that was, quote, established by the state, end quote. And since 34 states used healthcare.gov in that first year, um, then are they eligible for subsidies? And the court has to decide is the is the intent of the law that it be uh, enrollment through an exchange, uh, which is the way the Internal Revenue Service interpreted it. Uh, that's the real rub of the legal issue. The IRS acted as an agent of the federal government to say that if you enrolled in insurance and were eligible for a subsidy, whether through healthcare.gov or a state exchange, you were therefore eligible for these subsidies, which average uh, $263 per person. Um, if the court rules in favor of the plaintiffs, then uh, somewhere around 7.4 million people that think they're going to be subsidized through healthcare.gov uh, will uh, be in chaos. Um, we have 11 states where the legislators are trying to figure out a stopgap, uh, 12 to 18 months to kind of step in and subsidize the folks in their states. Uh, we've got some states that said, tough, uh, we would like to see the Affordable Care Act go down in flames. Uh, and if... Uh, Regardless of, you know, what the state does, what happens if the court rules in favor of uh, King versus Burwell, um, it will uh, make all the premiums in the individual insurance market increase almost overnight, 20 to 30 percent. Uh, the individual insurance market is the most risky market. Uh, so the insurance companies don't make as much money in the individual market. Many of them will tell you they don't really need to be in the individual market. They make a lot more money selling uh, big packages to big employers. So uh, I think it would be the beginning of the erosion of the individual insurance market, or it would certainly be uh, priced out of sight for most people. So we would so, rapidly go back to the way we were prior to the ACA, only it would probably be worse because the premiums would escalate. Premiums escalate fast. It shrinks the market. And uh, as you remember, uh, in states like Maine, 
there were a number of states after the law was passed that petitioned to get a waiver because the law said uh, 80% of the premium you take in for an individual policy has to be paid out in medical losses or medical expense. And states like Maine had uh, laws on the book that said it was 70%, not 80%. So it just puts the individual insurance market in a in a tither. And for uh, folks that are uh, your audience, uh, you know, if you're a uh, independent contractor and you work from home and you buy your own insurance, uh, you can expect 20, 30, 40% increase in your individual policy. Um, so it it's a difficult uh maybe unintended result if the court rules uh, kind of letter of the law, the Affordable Care Act, versus intent of the law. Uh, here's my hunch. Um, my sense is this will be a vote um, in favor of Burwell. I think um, the uh, sense of the court, the sense of the Roberts Court, certainly you've got four justices that are defenders of the Affordable Care Act, out of the gate. And then I think Justices uh, Kennedy and Roberts will probably side with the four and I think support the uh, intent of the law, which is that uh, the subsidies be accessible to people, uh, whether they uh, enroll through healthcare.gov or through a state exchange. And my rationale for that is very simply that uh, it is the state's prerogative to allow healthcare.gov to operate in the state in lieu of its own exchange. So I think the state maintains the authority. And I think if I were, and I, I listened to the uh, oral arguments March 4th, uh, I, I think that will be the, uh, the determination. But, uh, you know, between now and the end of June, uh, we'll hear about it and immediately... Uh, um, whether you're for or against the Affordable Care Act, uh, your fundraising letters are in the mail. You're, you're going out <laughs> and you're going to stir this thing up because it's either the undoing of the Affordable Care Act and we're back to square one or it's uh, government-run health care. So, <laughs> well, let's say, let's say that the Affordable Care Act, it, the ruling does preserve the Affordable Care Act, um, we still have this issue of what's going on in the states that didn't do the expansion of Medicaid and some of the issues that are related to that, in, in particular people who, who kind of fell into a gap. So they weren't able to uh, get subsidies on the exchange, but they didn't have enough money to be able to buy private insurance. Can you talk a little bit about, about that issue and whether you think any of these states will have, I don't know, a change of heart or find a heart and uh, and um, uh, participate in the Medicaid expansion? Well, it's a good question. We're, we're up to 27, with Pennsylvania being the last one uh, added. Uh, we've got states um, like Indiana and others that uh, there are four states that are uh, seeking uh, waivers so that essentially they can expand their Medicaid program uh, by voucherizing uh, their Medicaid program. So uh, an eligible Medicaid enrollee would essentially get um, uh, a contract with a private managed care organization and be subsidized 
and that money go directly to the managed care plan. So there are four states that are kind of thinking that direction. This is a backdoor uh, into expanding the Medicaid program. Um, you've got, um, interestingly, um, in many of the deep uh, red states, you have red governors that are that are supportive of expansion and face um, almost hostility from their legislatures against it, like in Tennessee or uh, others. So um, I suspect we'll see up to four additional states expand Medicaid, and I think that will be it. Well, it's really interesting because what we've done is we've created a situation where um, you know, the, it's, there aren't equal benefits, you know, de- for healthcare depending on where you where you live, and um, it seems to me that I, what I don't understand is why the folks who live in those states, who by the way are the states that I mean, it tends to be what we call the stroke belt, right? It's the states that have high burdens of obesity, heart disease, you know, all that whole uh, syndrome. Why there isn't more, um, you know? uprising in demand from individuals to be able to have that, you know, to be able to have coverage. What, what do you think is going on there? That's a fascinating view. Um, here's um, that stroke belt is also uh, high utilization, but low unit cost. So a, a day in the hospital or a test, um, tend to cost less than it cost in the in the Rust Belt or the Northeast. So uh, the relevance of that is this: um, most employers, and the employers are the catalyst for states and communities to address these issues. Most employers look at aggregate cost, and if their aggregate cost is not in state. Uh, in, in Mississippi, if it's substantially less than it is in Illinois, then they're going to look at Mississippi and say, uh, it's not perfect, but we're doing better there than we are in Illinois. And they tend not to look at um, utilization or volume, uh, where you've got a huge amount of unnecessary stuff being done. So uh, Medicaid costs or lack of Medicaid expansion uh, is a cost borne by employers. It's a hidden tax. Uh, Essentially, the hospitals um, take their underpayments from Medicare and Medicaid, and here's kind of a general rule. For a dollar of cost, charges don't mean anything, but for a dollar of cost, what that widget costs, Hospitals collect about 70 cents from Medicaid. They collect uh, just above 90 cents from Medicare. Uh, People without insurance, they collect less than 10 cents. So what they do is they mark up what they charge and collect from others who are commercially insured to make up for that difference. Sure, the cost. So that's the hidden tax. That's cost shifting. So... When employers begin to uh, think, you know, I pay for my employees, my dependents, 
Um, but I'm also paying for the employer down the street that doesn't provide health insurance. And I'm paying for a large number of people that go without insurance and show up in the emergency room. Um, it's in states where employers uh, kind of force the issue that Medicaid expansion is going to be topical. Um, and and you, you end up seeing this... Um, kind of play out in some interesting ways. The highest uh, uninsured rate in the country is in Texas. Um, so you'd wonder why these big companies that are headquartered in Texas are comfortable or at least not um, too aggressive about it. Well, there are two reasons. One is uh, the tax laws in the state of Texas are favorable to companies. Uh, state doesn't have a state income tax and the uh, tax culture of Texas makes operating the business and its bottom line attractive. Uh, and healthcare is just an expense, like where you build your office. So those companies are saying, given all the other things going on, uh, this is not killing us. The second reason is, um, in that particular industry in which the company operates, um, Health benefits um, are simply part of your cost of doing business. It's not something that is becoming a differentiator. You don't uh, have a certain company within your sector, whether it's telecom or manufacturing, that's done something with its health benefits that makes it more attractive than a competitor. So um, the, the whole economic impact of Medicaid expansion uh, should be two economic benefits. It should reduce the cost to employers who have a lower hidden tax, lower uh, cost shifting, and it should lower the cost of health care uh, in the state because uh, the folks that are getting insurance uh, are not going to an emergency room when it's too late, but we're uh, getting them into the system, diagnosing and treating in less costly settings. Uh, and that seems to play out, but um, employers hold the cards. I mean, that's a that's a critical factor. Employers have a big role. Yeah, it's interesting. I spent many years working for employers, including six years at, uh, at General Motors. And as you know, that probably contributed to the bankruptcy. And, and uh, you know, they've, they've really exited the role that they had in, in, in the past. But they still play, as you said, a very important role. So, Paul, okay. our time together is, is, is just about up. Um, and I really want to thank you. I think the take-home message for our audience is that there are so many twists and turns. This is such a complex issue that it's very hard to uh, get your arms around it and come up with a, with, with a simple uh, way in which to solve the problem, at least in the U.S., where we have not embraced and are, I think, unlikely anytime soon to embrace the idea that we should have uh, universal coverage, uh, whether it be a single-payer system or you know something else that is, in quotes, uh, government-run. So um, thanks again for joining us, and uh, I look forward to continuing to read uh, what you write about health reform and uh, helping me to stay informed. So thank you. Thank you, Pat. Appreciate it very much. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.